So you guys are going to get message number six of an eight-message series on the book of Jonah. So we're going to be in Jonah chapter three. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'll actually start in the uh, in the middle of verse three of chapter three, and then we're going to read the section. Will be verses kind of three B through ten will be our passage for this morning, and uh, I'd like to look at what does it mean and what does repentance look like, because repentance is something very important to God. That's we're all sinners. We all have sinned, and we all know that. So what does God call us to do to deal with that sin? How does God deal with us being sinful people, and yet we can be in his presence, like we are this morning? So if you are there in Jonah, I will read. I am reading from the New International Version this morning. That's what I use. There's a lot of versions, and I think there's a lot of good ones. This is the one that I've been the most used to and comfortable growing up with, so that's what I'm getting used today. Uh, So Jonah 3, and I will begin in the middle of verse 3. It says, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This was the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent, and with compassion... Turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. (laughs) Will you uh, join me in prayer as we go to the Lord and his word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that it brings us, the fact that we can repent. We can turn to you. And there is hope of your compassion. Father, we thank you for the way this teaches us how to repent and what that looks like in our lives. And Father, we ask that you would give us open ears and open hearts this morning, that you can be teaching us. Father, I ask that I would step out of the way and that you would speak to these people this morning, that your word would go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, and that your people might be built up. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So instructions and illustrations are very good for us. We're people that need lots of instruction. We need lots of help to instruct us, to show us what that looks like. And that was very vividly demonstrated to some of us last summer when, when we had a chance to go and help at a local rescue mission. They were doing some remodeling, and we had the opportunity to go in and help them with some of this project that they were working on. And one of the things we did was we helped them put together some lockers. Well... It was rather interesting because we got there and they said, here's the lockers. There was this case of the metal that we were supposed to use to put it together. And then, instructions. It was an easy two-step pattern, an easy two-step process to get to the end product. The first picture was basically showed you all the pieces, and the second one showed the product being completed, finished, and the door being opened. (laughs) It was pretty poor instructions. It didn't illustrate very well what we were supposed to do. But we can be very thankful that God gives us better instructions than that. God gives us an illustration 
of what repentance looks like. And that's what we get in our text this morning. We get a vast city, 120,000 or so people that turn and repent. They turn from their evil ways and they look to God. And I think from it, we see some steps on the path to repentance. We learn what does repentance look like and how can we join together with the Ninevites in turning from our evil and turning to God and the compassion that he gives us. If we want to experience God's compassion, we have to understand his wrath against sin. We have to understand and believe that message and we have to respond to that. So that's what I'd like to do this morning because we cannot take God's compassion for granted. I think that's something we in the church have a tendency of doing. We have a tendency of saying, we've all grown up in the church. We've all grown up with God's compassion. We talk about it a lot. And that's a good thing. But we also have a tendency of forgetting God's wrath against sin, God's anger against sin. And I think we have to remember and remind ourselves, God is angry over sin. It's something that the Israelites forgot time and again. And we're even told in the book of 2 Kings chapter 17 that the reason Israel, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed was because they did not believe God. They had his message. They had his prophets regularly speaking to them. But they didn't turn from their evil ways. 2 Kings 17, 13, and 14 says, The Lord warned Israel and Judah throughout all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey so that I delivered them through the, my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust the Lord their God. In contrast to that this morning, we're told that the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites trusted in who God was and what he gave to them. And what about us? Will we be like the Ninevites? who believe God and believe his message? Or will we be like the Israelites who did not trust the Lord and did not believe his message? Because what's at stake on one side is blessing and compassion. If we want to experience God's compassion, we have to follow his steps of repentance. So let's review these steps of repentance. Let's consider, what do these look like? What does this mean? What does it mean to repent and to walk down this path. And I think at first it begins with this. Since God threatens judgment, we must proclaim his anger. Now that may sound kind of odd. You're like, well, how can we? God's a compassionate God. But the reality is God threatens judgment. That's what he brings to the Ninevites. Jonah comes in and he speaks this message. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's what God threatens. Since God threatens judgment, we must proclaim his anger. First, we must actively proclaim his anger. Consider, look at, look at what Jonah is doing here. It says, now Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. This is a large city. I mean, consider this one little man in a large city. I mean, consider like a city like even Kansas City or St. Joe, for instance. And consider walking into the city. You're a single man. You're just going to walk in on the edge of the city, and you're going to start proclaiming a message. You're probably not going to be heard. I mean, really, think about it. A vast city, 120,000 people or so, something like that. But what's Jonah doing? He trudges into the city. It tells us, verse 4 there, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming. He actively is proclaiming God's message as God gave it to him. He trudges in. He's like a needle in a haystack inside this vast metropolis. And as we watch this tiny figure, you know, he's zero in. Here's Jonah walking into the city. He's walking in and he comes in and he proclaims. He says, 40 more days 
and Nineveh will be overthrown. Do you think very many people listened to him? No? Whether they did or not, Jonah is obeying the word of the Lord. Jonah is doing what he's been told, and he's actively proclaiming God's anger. He's saying, God is going to judge because of sin. Do we do that to each other? Do we remind each other of the fact God is going to judge sin? Or do we take for granted the fact that God has shown compassion in Christ and we say, that's true. And that's only true if we really understand God's anger against sin. We must join together with Jonah and actively proclaim God's anger against sin. The way Paul puts it in the book of 2 Timothy, he says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, you may not be called here today to be a missionary. You may not be called to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim a message. But all of us have been given a message from God. We have it in this word. We have God's word to us. And what does it tell us? It tells us one day he will judge the world. The same way he was going to judge Nineveh. He promises that message. That's the message he gives us. And we must actively proclaim his anger. I think there's another way we can see this, another thing as we look, and that's the content of Jonah's message. And he must accurately proclaim God's anger. We didn't read it this morning, but just before in chapter 3, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This is God's message. This isn't Jonah's message. Jonah didn't come up with this. Jonah didn't decide, I want to proclaim. I'm going to decide this is what I'm going to give you. What Jonah does is he's proclaiming the message that God gave him. He must actively proclaim his anger. This is God's anger. It's not Jonah's anger. It's God's anger. Jonah doesn't use very many words, but not very many words are needed. It's only five words in the Hebrew. Actually, eight in our English translation or in this particular one I have. Only eight words or five And if you take this as a summary, we could say Jonah may have used a few more words than this. That is possible. But whether it's a summary or the full content, that may be all Jonah said. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That may be all he said. But it accurately communicates God's anger against the sin of the Ninevites. It accurately communicates it. We must actively proclaim the anger of God that he's revealed about hell and about judgment. We can't water it down. We can't turn it into something it's not. Because if we do, what we're actually doing is we're diminishing God's message. We must proclaim the full truth of hell and judgment. It's something we're called to do, something we're required to do. And if we want to walk the path of repentance, we say we want God's blessing, we want God's compassion. If we want that, we have to start the right place. And that place is beginning with proclaiming His anger. You know, Israel had a problem. They didn't like to do this. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13 through 15 says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. 
prophets and priests alike. So prophets, the ones who are speaking for God, and priests, the ones who are leading in worship in Old Testament Israel, alike. They all practice deceit. It says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Is sin a serious thing? I think it is. We'd all agree, sin is a serious thing. But the people of Israel, the priests and the prophets in Israel, were dressing the wound as though it wasn't serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Do we hear that today? People saying, peace, peace. God's a peaceful God. God wants to have compassion on you. Is that what we hear? Oftentimes we do. Is that the message we proclaim? Or do we actively and accurately proclaim God's message? Which is that He will judge sin. He is provoked to anger by our sin. You know, at my parents' house, we have a fireplace, which means we spend hours working together to cut wood and to split wood and to haul it up to the house and to work together. It's a great family project. Actually, I don't know if any of you have any fireplaces in your house, but it's a, it's a blessing. It's also a bit of a struggle. But the reality is my older brother has a couple of children, actually a three now, uh, my first niece was born here a few weeks ago, so I now have three, two, nie- two nephews and a niece. But when they come over to our house, they don't have a fireplace at their house. So when they come over to our house, one of the things that has to be done is there has to be an accurate and active reminder to these little boys that you know, a fireplace is a dangerous thing. You can't just touch that, because if you touch it, that's hot. And you have to remind them accurately and actively that that's a hot thing, otherwise somebody will get hurt. The same is true for us. If we don't actively and accurately proclaim God's judgment, somebody's going to get hurt by a much hotter fire than that fireplace. How are we to live this out? What are we doing? What does this look like in our lives? And brothers and sisters, we must do the work of an evangelist. That must be part of what we're doing. And that starts by us proclaiming God's anger. People raised in Christian homes have a tendency to think that the weight of our sin is not that great. We must not neglect this part of God's message. It may not be the most glamorous part of God's message, but it is a very true part of God's message. We need to examine our own hearts and our minds. Do we really see God's anger against sin as it really is? Is this the way we talk to ourselves, to each other, those of you that are parents, do you remind? With compassion, I mean, that passage in in 2 Timothy said, with careful patience and careful instruction. And this isn't, we're not taking God's anger and beating people with it. But we are reminding them of the fact, God will judge sin. Is that what you're telling your children as you discipline them for disobeying? Is that what you're reminding your co-worker who doesn't think that God is that serious? Is that what we're looking at when we walk through life? Do we realize my sin is grievous in God's sight? Am I reminding myself and others around me that God is angry about sin? Since God threatens judgment, we must proclaim His anger. Brothers and sisters, we simply must. It's not an option not to. But that's not all that we learn in this text in Jonah. There's a second thing. Perhaps this is a little more exciting. That's the first point. We must proclaim God's anger. But secondly, since God threatens judgment, we must believe His message. 
We must proclaim His anger and we must believe His message. It tells us there in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They believed Him. So you have this little man on the edge of the city, journeying a day's journey in. He comes in and he speaks a message. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What do you expect? A pagan city, pagan people, they know nothing about God. They don't know who God is. They're evil. We're told that in Jonah. That the Ninevites' ways were evil. They're wicked. They're violent. But what do they do? They don't kill Jonah. A lot of times that happened to prophets, isn't it? They go and proclaim a, a very difficult message and the people kill them. Is that what happens to Jonah? No. Why not? Because the next step on God's path of repentance is believing his message. And that's what the Ninevites do. They give us a pattern, a picture of what it looks like to repent. The first step is you must hear of God's anger. And the second step is you must believe that that is true. The reality is, we have that message in the Bible. Many people have heard it. Even in our culture, many people have heard and seen what the Bible says about God's wrath against sin. But you can hear it, and that doesn't do you any good. It must change you. It must change your attitude about sin. It says they believe God, and then what does it say next? It says, a fast was proclaimed in all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And then a little later in the king's proclamation, it says, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone call urgently on God. These people changed the tune of their attitude that they're going. They're no longer singing joyful songs. They're now, in effect, you could say, playing a dirge. Why? Because they believed God. God does not want joyful songs when wickedness is running rampant. God does not want praise songs. He doesn't want us to be running and having a glorious time if there's sin running rampant around us in our own lives and the lives of those that we're touching. The way he puts it in James is he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He will lift you up. The reality is, we are sinful people. We should not be just running about singing joyful praise songs. Now I don't mean to say we shouldn't sing joyful praise songs. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, we must have a serious view of our sin. Because God has a serious view of our sin. And if we really believe God's message, it's going to change our attitude about sin. We're not going to look at sin lightly. And that's the Ninevites is demonstrated here. I mean, you have a colorful illustration of that. They talk about covering the animals with sackcloth. I mean, really. How many of us would say, we're going to mourn about our sins, so we're going to go out and put sackcloth on our animals, our, our cows or our dogs or whatever it is. I mean, that's what they're doing here. And animals were a big part of their society. I mean, this is a society that runs on animals. I mean, in some ways, this is like putting sackcloth on your car. This is like saying, this permeates an image. I mean, it affects everything that I am. It's not just something on the surface. It says, no, this is everything that I am. Everything that I do 
This is my livelihood. This is going to have long-term impact. I mean, some of us, we just come out of this pandemic and whether everything was done and it was right or not, the reality is they shut the economy down, didn't they? That's what happened. The economy shuts down. Well, we're still going to see the effects of some of that. That's what these guys do. And it's not over a pandemic. This is over God's anger against sin. They respond to it and they treat it seriously because they believe God's message. And I'm not saying you have to believe everything about the coronavirus. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is God has spoken a message. Do we believe it? Does it affect us? Does it change our attitude about sin? Or do we simply float through life going about it as if nothing changed? No, God's spoken. Our attitude should change. But more than that, something that Israel actually tended to forget They like to change their attitude. That's actually pretty easy. It's easy to sing a dirge on occasion, right? What's hard is to change your actions. And the Ninevites don't stop with an attitude change. The Ninevites continue with an action change. So we show we believe his message by changing our attitude. And we show we believe his message by changing our actions. What does the king's message say? It says that they should put on sackcloth. It says that they should cry out to God. It says that they shouldn't eat or drink. And then it says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. That's the second half of verse 8. Give up their evil ways and their violence. Now turn in your Bible, if you're still in Jonah and you've got it open, go back to Jonah chapter 1. And it says this in verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because it's wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was a wicked city. And when we believe God's message, it makes us want to act upon that and change our actions. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. If we truly believe God, it will change the way we think about sin and it will change the way we act in our lives. We won't continue running through sin without a second thought. But this is exactly what the Israelites tended to do. If you, want to, if you have your Bible and you want to turn to it, Isaiah chapter 58. This is a very sober passage, particularly in light of what we're dealing with here today. Because what's going on in Nineveh is they're proclaiming a fast. Right? They're fasting. They have sackcloth. This is, this is a, a very troubled situation. They're, they're praying. They're crying out to God. Isaiah 58 is God's word to Israel about what they do when they fast. So I'm going to pick up in verse 3. Actually, I'll read a pretty good section because I think it encompasses what I'm trying to get at here. And it says, this is the Israelites speaking, and they say, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So basically Israel is saying, we're fasting, we're praying, we're crying out to you. Why don't you notice that? Why, Why doesn't that impact you? Why don't you show favor upon us? God answers that. And he says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and the striking of each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for the bowing of one's head like a reed? And for lying in sackcloth and ashes, is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke of the oppressed. To set the oppressed free 
and to break every yoke. Is not it to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. I think there is benefit at times to actually fast and to deny ourselves of food, to actually be reminded of the fact that we don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God, that that's what we live by. And I wouldn't claim that I'm very good at fasting or that do it often, but I think it is a good discipline for us to practice at times. But I think more importantly than that is for us to loose the chains of injustice, for us to change our ways. That's what God's saying here. What God's saying here is the Ninevites could have done everything else. They could have fasted. They could have put sackcloth on their animals. They could have not drank anything. They could have spent a day in mourning or even three days or however long it was. They could have done that. But if they wouldn't have changed their evil ways and their violence, then God would not have relented. Because the full encompassing of believing God's message has to be two parts. It has to change our attitude. But it also has to change our action. Because if our actions don't change, in one sense we have a half-baked reality. You know, the other day, I was over at a friend's house, and we were having supper, and as part of that supper, we were having brownies. Which I think most of you probably like brownies, at least if you're not my mother. She doesn't like chocolate, so she probably wouldn't. But most of the rest of us do. And uh, we were having brownies for dessert, and they were in the oven and baking, and so as this is going on, you know, the smell is filling the house, and then the timer rings, so it's time to take them out. And they get pulled out of the oven, and you would not have wanted to eat those brownies. Now most of you, if anybody here knows, you, knows me, knows that I like things more done. But even my friends who maybe like things a little lesser done said, no, those got, you, you shake the pan and they kind of jiggle and it's like, you know, those aren't done yet. So we stick them back in the oven. Reality is, if we have an attitude change about our sin, not an action change about our sin, we have half-baked brownies. We have a half-baked truth. It's not really there. We're not really believing God's message until it begins to transform the way we act. It should transform the way we think and our attitude about sin. But it also must change our actions. We must give up our evil ways and our violence. And some of us may not think, well, my ways aren't necessarily that evil, are they? I mean, really. But what, is, what are we told in Scripture? It says even our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Do we really spend time digging into God's Word and considering, what does He say about my sin? And am I patterning my life after Jesus Christ. That's some of what we talked about in the Sunday school time. We were talking about what does it mean to pattern our life after Jesus Christ. To think about life the way he thinks about life. To go about life the way he goes about life. Is that what we're doing? Because if we really believe God's message, that is what we will be doing. We must humble ourselves before the Lord and our attitude towards sin must change. And it must not stop there. Our actions must change. Now, growing up, I had some trouble with an anger problem. And I won't say I've completely mastered it. I still have trouble with that. But one of the things my dad had me do was he had me memorize Proverbs 29.11, which says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. And I still remember it, because they, they reminded me of that often. And if I would have an anger problem, they would say, Well, what does Proverbs 29.11 say? Well, what were they doing? They were teaching me, This is God's attitude about sin. And this is the action that you should do about it. You should keep yourself under control. Why? 
because it's important to God the way you respond in every situation. I think this is an example of how we can use God's word to, our, to bear in our lives our, God's message of his anger about sin and to say God doesn't like us being angry. God doesn't like that. That's, that's foolish in his sight. And instead, if we want to really be transformed people, we ought to take the steps of repentance that God gives us. We must proclaim his anger. We must believe his message. And I think one of the ways we can do that is to think, what does scripture say about this particular area of sin in my life? And what does scripture say I should do about that sin? To begin acting the way Christ acts. To begin living the way Christ wants us to live. So we must proclaim God's anger. We must believe his message. But there's one more thing that this text gives us. Since God threatens judgment, we must trust his compassion. We must believe what God says about sin. And then we must trust that God offers compassion. Now, what in this text gives the Ninevites that idea? All Jonah says is, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't say anything else. That's all he says. That's all that's there. What in that would give the king the hope to say what he does in verse 9? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They have this thought that maybe, just maybe, God's going to change. First, they, don't, they trust God's compassion and not their own actions. They're saying, we're going to change, but in the end, this lies in God's hands. In the end, this is God's decision. God threatens the judgment. Therefore, we trust God's compassion to relent of that judgment. We can't trust. You could almost get this idea as you look at it, because verse 10 will tell us, when God saw how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. So you could kind of come to this idea that, well, these people were walking through life, and they were called, given a message, they believed that message, they responded, turned from their evil ways, and then God changes his mind and says, I'm not going to punish them. That it's dependent upon their actions. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. Why? Because it says, who knows? God may yet relent. It doesn't depend on the people. It depends on God having compassion. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's what Galatians 2.21 says. We cannot fall into the trap of thinking that we made God change. It's God's anger against sin. And it's God's compassion that we must trust. We aren't going to do something to make God change. We're going to trust what God has given. Now, I'm not trying to belittle what I said earlier to say we must believe his message. We must change our actions. That's part of God's truth. That is there. But ultimately, we don't trust that our actions is what's pleasing in God's sight. What's pleasing in God's sight is for him to show compassion in his son. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Now how do we reconcile that truth with the truth that we see in, in Jonah? It says God changed his mind. I mean, that, relented is the way the NIV translates it. You could say changed his mind. So is God changing his mind here and then in Numbers say he doesn't change his mind? And I think 
And I'm not going to claim that here I'm a young man and I figured this out and theologians have argued for years over what exactly this means. What I'm going to say is God is beyond us. And we trust not because God's a predictable vending machine that we can control by our actions, but because God is a compassionate God that has shown us compassion. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, and he passed in front of Moses. This is Moses. He says, I want to see your glory. Show it to me. God says, I will. And God passes in front of Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is two halves of who God is. And they're not in competition with each other. And we leave it in God's hands to say, is he going to show compassion or is he going to show his anger? And he's just and right and good to punish us for our sin. But do we also have a reason to trust God's compassion? Yes, we do. We don't trust our own actions, but we also don't trust God's anger. We trust his compassion and not his anger. God has threatened judgment, but our hope is that he poured that judgment on somebody else. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have reason to trust God's compassion and not his anger because he has crushed his son. God's anger against sin is manifest at the cross. That's where we see it. Now, the reality, if any of us are here today and we don't have faith in Jesus Christ, that anger against sin will get poured out on us, which is why we must proclaim God's anger. Because anyone who does not believe in the name of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ and his atonement for sin will one day suffer in hell for their sin. But the good news for each of us is we can trust God's compassion and not his anger because God poured his anger on another in our place. Jesus hadn't sinned, but God crushed him because we have sinned. We must remember, we must proclaim God's anger. We must believe his message. We must trust his compassion as revealed in Jesus Christ. You know, the other day, I and a couple of friends, and actually a couple of them are here with me, they were with me uh, last Sunday. We were going up to Bethany, Missouri, because uh, I was preaching at a couple of churches up there. And on the way back, uh, I didn't check my directions well enough before I left. And so we ended up driving into St. Joe, and I missed my corner that I should have turned on because I wasn't looking for it. And we were talking together, and I ended up in a part of St. Joe that I didn't know which I'm not from around here. I'm from a little town in Durham in central Kansas. And so I don't know St. Joe very well. And here we are at the edge of St. Joe and I don't know where I am or what I'm going to do. Well, I'm very thankful my, phone had, or my friend had a phone and he could look us up on a map and it gave us directions. Now, I couldn't say anything about those directions, whether they were getting me to the right place or not. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what to do. I was in a place where I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust my own actions. My own actions had got myself into a mess. I was in a problem. But we had some instructions. And if I trusted those instructions to lead me to the right place, 
we didn't eventually end up getting out of St. Joe and back on the way to Atchison. Well, the same is true for us. Our actions have got us into a mess. Our actions have put us into a sinful situation. That's what we do. We act in sin. But God's compassion has given us a way out. And we must trust that compassion if we're going to take God's steps of repentance. We must proclaim His message. We must believe His message. And we must trust in that message. We cannot take God's message and His compassion for granted. Nor should we sit cowering in fear because of God's anger. That's not what God wants us. He says with confidence you can approach the throne of grace and find mercy to help in your time of need. Why? Because Jesus has been crushed for us. And if I can leave you with something today, that's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with the fact that God is gracious and compassionate in Jesus. The reality is God is angry over sin. And we must believe that anger. There's a lot in our culture that don't want to. But we must believe that message of God's anger against sin. But more importantly, on the end of that, we don't stop. If we only take two steps on the path, we're not to the end. We have to take all three of them. And the third step, and the Ninevites do. Guess what happens to the Ninevites? Because the Ninevites hear God's message proclaimed, because the Ninevites believe that message and act on it, and because the Ninevites trust in God's compassion, God extends mercy to them and compassion to them. What about us today? Where do we sit? What about our neighbors? Do our neighbors around us know of God's anger? Do our neighbors around us know of God's compassion? We are the people that hold the hope of that. We've been transformed by that. And my prayer is that everyone here today has been transformed by that. And if there's anybody, I would extend to you the fact that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But that also extends to the fact that whoever does not call upon the name of the Lord will not be saved. So my message to you is, trust God's compassion. If we want to experience repentance and revival in our own lives and the lives of those around us, we must actively take God's steps toward repentance. We must proclaim His anger. We must believe His message. We must trust His compassion. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for your word to us. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us in sin. You do not leave us in wickedness, but that you bring a message to us that confronts us where we are, points our sin out to us. Father, and we thank you that you've provided redemption for us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that does not know you, that has not experienced the the changing power of Jesus Christ in their life, I ask that you might be at work in their hearts today. Father, that you might use the reminder of your anger against sin and the hope of your compassion in Jesus Christ to bring them to that saving knowledge. Father, I ask for that. And Father, I ask for these people here today that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I ask that you might work in their hearts and their minds so that they can see the hope that they have in life. Even if there's areas of sin that they're struggling with, that they might Give them to you and trust your compassion and begin changing those actions by the grace of God. Father, this is my prayer. Father, I ask that you would be challenging and equipping us to proclaim your message, to believe your message, and to trust in your compassion that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.